Amen. Man, we are super glad you guys are here. Uh, whether you brought breakfast or not, it's probably our best first Sunday breakfast we've ever had. So if you were late, uh, I'm not going to make you feel bad, but I'm going to let you know you, you, you probably missed out. But that's okay. There's still food to go, so make a to-go plate and, uh, and take that with you because I don't need it. Um, man, what a, what a morning. Like, for us to be able to gather... Um, I think I'm still kind of reeling from the effects of COVID to a degree of just the fact that we, were, we had to miss something for a while. Um, you know, graciously enough, God allowed us to gather back together after just a few months. But even after we gathered back together, there were still people that, that needed to stay home. And, and that's fine. But, but what it did for me, I, I think, is it did help me unpack some of my baggage of like how much I place value or how little maybe value that I had placed on the gathering of the saints uh, just on a day like Sunday. Um, but it, it has in turn made me incredibly grateful that we get to do this. And while, again, we'll say it all the time, this will never be our identity. This is not who we are. We don't, this is not the reflection of the kingdom, although it is going to be a small part of what the kingdom looks like. Uh, it is something we get to do as a result of being brought into the kingdom. And, it, and it's just fun. Like from the very beginning this morning, uh, just being able to sit and pray uh, before everything gets started. And, and even in just some silence of this morning of being able just to sit with God and just and listen, um, man, it's just, it's thick. Like, I don't even know how else to describe it. I mean, it's, it's just where we are in this particular text and, and where God's bringing us to be, it's just, it's just thick and it's rich. And I'm excited. And thank you guys for being a part, um, for being here. Um, you guys, there's a brand new baby in the back, and we're not going to make you guys stand up or anything, but y'all are brave, bringing like new baby smell and everything in this morning. Um, but make sure you guys talk to Gabe and Catherine this morning and tell them congratulations on their baby. It's good to see you guys back and uh, grateful for you guys to be here. And I did want to remind you guys, this is going on back with the kids this morning. They're making that, but also our team is back there. And part of our VBS, what we're going to do down in Kakapek is uh, we're going to act out part of Scripture. I say we, I don't get to go this year, but the team is acting out part of Scripture. And so a lot of our team is back there this morning, and they're acting it out for our kids um, walking through the passage that we're going to be walking through the kids with, in Kakapek. And so hopefully they're having a good time and getting their jitters out before they do it, in which there's two translators and things are just wild and crazy. Uh, but be, uh, just remember to be praying for them. They leave in about a week and a half. Um, they'll be in country for about six days, a lot of travel, a lot of stuff. And, uh, man, it is a different world down there, totally. And they need Jesus really bad. They need to know that God loves them in spite of everything. Um, and we get the privilege to take that and go there and let them know. And so be in, be in prayer for them. Um, pray for their safety. Pray for their travel. Do all that stuff. But most importantly, pray that, like, the gospel is heard in their language, understood in their language. The Spirit of God draws them to himself, saves those who need him most, um, and just that God moves. And allowing us to see it is, man, that's, that's praiseworthy in and of itself. Uh, we got a team of 12 and hopefully you'll be able to meet them next Sunday. We'll pray for them before they go, so be back for that. And so, in the meantime, we're going to look at Mark today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 15. Um, we are close to that 18-month mark here in the book of Mark, and we, uh, we've got basically a week left of text. Not today, but counting next week, one week left. And, and it's been fun. I've told several pastors in, in kind of our network um, that we've been here for that long, and they're like, yowza, and I'm like, yep, yowza, but it's been, it's been fun, so hopefully you've been able to, to listen along, and um, if you want to ever get caught up, you can go back, almost all of them are on there, except the Sundays that we had technical difficulty, which happens in mobile church life, um, but otherwise they're there. I'm going to pray, um, my brain's all over the place this morning, and so uh, before we dive in, let's, let's pray together. God, we love you, thank you so much for loving us, um, thank you God that you're not just an influence in our life, God, but you're the source of life. Um, you're the cause for us to have hope. You're the realization of our hope. Uh, Father, you are the founder of our promise that we can be united with you for eternity. And it doesn't depend on our goodness. It depends on Jesus. And God, for all of that, uh, collectively, from the bottom of us, God, we say thank you. Uh, as we read your word this morning, I pray that we're faithful to look at it, not add anything or take anything away, but it's just your word that speaks and your spirit that's telling us what it says. Um, continue to make us look more and more like the bride of Christ that you desire. Uh, the church that you desire in this city, um, and God, the, the force for kingdom change that you need us to be. Thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, uh, we have been walking towards this for the past month and a half. Uh, the, the passion narrative, as we call it, just those last few days of Christ, and even though it's, uh, it's taken us just 
you know, like two months to get here, it's only been about, you know, five days for Jesus since we kind of started this passion narrative from the time that he entered Jerusalem in such a triumphant way. And just to remind you, when he entered Jerusalem, uh, there were people, they were singing Hosanna, they were laying down palm branches, they were doing their version of a red carpet, and they're like, we are so glad you're here, uh, the Messiah has come, that kind of thing. Today, what we see is the tone of the people changes, uh, sadly, but also victoriously, and today we see the cross. Uh, and here, here's the challenge in this. The synoptic writers, the, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even where John records parts of the gospel, um, it's not that their details are sparse, but they are exact. And so they don't add fluff. They don't add conjecture. They don't add supposition. They, it's it's, you know, it's kind of just the facts, ma'am. That's the way they, they write it. Uh, and again, we want to look, uh, when we're doing our best to look at the crucifixion and the cross and all of its weight and all of its glory simultaneously, we do want to look from the different chairs that were in the room, the different perspectives, all four of the Gospels and the way that they write. But mainly for us, we're going to be looking at the book of Mark because that's where we are. We'll reference a few of the other Gospel writers' ideas in here. Um, but even with all of them, even with John, and John's generally a little bit more verbose and uses a bit more wordage, um, even he is just, he's concise when talking about the crucifixion. And, and I think a lot of times I'm like, why? We wanted more details, but I think there was caution and care given to make sure that we don't say things that are not there. And that's very important because the cross was, it was leading up to the culmination of the work of Christ because the cross wasn't it. We know that there's a resurrection that comes after, but at the same time, it's pivotal for us, kind of like we talked about last week, like who Jesus was is everything. It was everything in the trial. It's everything to my salvation. It's everything to my eternity. And, and the function, the act, and the events leading up to and taking place on the cross, like they are utmost. And, and we need to be careful not to add to, take anything away, but look at what happened, ask, ask what is the result of what happened, and then we get to live in that uh, if we just believe. And so today, we're going to do our best to do that. And we're covering a large chunk of Scripture, but I'll go ahead and tell you, in doing that, uh, my focus today is going to be on two verses. Uh, we're going to look at it all. We're going to talk about the things that led up to it. It's going to give us context for those two verses, but mainly two verses is where I want us to spend the bulk of our thought and, and how we man, how we just kind of soak this up like a, a biscuit with good gravy. We didn't have any biscuits and gravy this morning. That's okay. It's all right. I mean, the calories were there, man. Uh, but anyway, biscuit and gravy next time. So here we go. So we're in Mark chapter 15, verse 16, and we're going to read through verse 41. We're going to go ahead and read this large chunk of scripture and then kind of talk about it in pieces. And it says, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Like, this is, like, I don't know if you, you've read this lately, but it's, <sighs> yeah. And they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, or Calvary, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. See also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Labak, Sathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion 
who stood facing him saw that, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking, women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So to catch us up, if you haven't been here, Jesus has just endured two mock trials, so to speak. One on behalf of Israel, the other on behalf of Rome. One on behalf of Israel, their charge against Jesus was blasphemy. They said he's being blasphemous, yet they tried to gather as many liars as they could, but they couldn't find enough liars to agree to actually use those actual charges that they were trying to bring up. The lies that they did somewhat agree on, but were not enough for legal precedence, uh, where he said uh, that he was going to destroy the temple made by hands and rebuild it into a temple not made by hands. Not his exact wording that we see in John chapter 2 when he cleansed the temple likely for the first time, but it was pretty close. And the lie that they were engineering, that they were trying to use to get him crucified, ironically, and I say ironically, even though irony is a literary term, and this is quite literal and really happened, so I'm, I'm kind of amiss to use that word, uh, the lie that they were fabricating would turn out to actually be the ultimate truth. And they thought it would be enough to get him crucified, yet they, they couldn't get their lies straight. And finally, what it hinged on there and with the trial in Rome, uh, or under the Roman authority, is it all hinged on his identity. His identity, because they, they asked, you know, who are you? Or I've heard it said that you were this. And in both cases, he didn't answer the charges, which he could have easily gotten off of, but he did answer the question about his identity. One was he was indeed the son of the blessed. They wouldn't dare say God or Yahweh. They wouldn't do that, even with their perverted sense of the law at this point. But they did say son of the blessed, and he said, yes, I am. Or just, as a matter of fact, I am, which we could look back to Old Testament and make a huge long day of that. But he said, I am, and I'm going to come back in a way that you're not going to believe. And then his trial on the part of the Romans, they said, we hear that you're the king of the Jews. Not a term that he had used, not a term that his followers had used, but a term that the chief priests and scribes had given to him because they knew if he accepted that, he would be crucified because what he was doing is he was assuming control, assuming leadership, and people of Rome said, no, 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 you're under our control. You can't do that. And when asked about that, he basically said, yeah, yeah, as you've said. And in both cases, when questioned about his identity and when answering the call of his identity, when he affirmed who he actually was, in both cases, the Jewish people said, what else do we need to hear? Let's kill him. The people of Rome, Pilate at least, was a little more reticent because he knew that this man had really no charges being brought against him that were true, but he saw the people of Israel wanting him dead. He eventually washed his hands and said, do what you will. I'll release a prisoner, a criminal, possibly a murderer instead, just to make you happy. And I'll have Jesus killed to make you happy. And it says they led him away and they began to flog him. And that's where we find him today after being scourged, which we didn't go into detail about that last week, but... You know, according to Rome, they would, they would do 40 minus 1 lashes. Lashes would like this thing that we call a cat of nine tails. It was a whip in which they had woven nine strands of leather together and embedded glass and bone and rock in it, and they would beat him 39 times because they said, if they beat you 40, you will die. And they basically ripped him to shreds before the crucifixion. And we even go back and look, and we talked about this fact that there would be no forgiveness of my sins without the shedding of blood. And we can even go back to the Garden of Gethsemane when we see that hematidrosis was occurring with Jesus. Blood was beginning to be spilled there. The crushing of Christ was occurring even in the garden, the place of the olive press, which olives were emptied of the thing that they held that people used for life itself. Jesus, the very same way, the weight, but it wasn't the weight of a cru crushing stone, but ultimately of my sin and your sin that was being placed squarely on Jesus, the innocent, the spotless lamb crushing him, emptying him of the very thing that he needed to live, but we needed for eternity. And now he's being led to the cross. Not invented by Rome, invented hundreds of years before, but apparently perfected by Rome, and they were proud of it. Perfected as a means of painful, horrible public execution for those they deemed unworthy to be Roman, unworthy to live, unworthy to have honor in death or any of those things, just the least. That's how they killed. And they did it in public spectacle. 
most of the time when crucifixion would occur, they couldn't do it within the city walls. They would have to do it without the city. And this being Jerusalem, they would go outside of the city. And in this place, they said they took him to a place called Golgotha or Calvary, which is a hill that kind of looked like a skull. And they would do it on the busiest road into Jerusalem that they could because they wanted everyone to see people dying in such tragic and horrible ways. Because it wasn't so much about the punishment for the sin as it was a warning to those who were not of Rome, don't be like these people because you could die like them too. A public display of a personal and perfect Savior. Ah. So it says before all of that, the soldiers led him away inside the palace to the governor's headquarters. They called together a whole battalion, a bunch of soldiers, and they clothed them in a purple cloak or a uh, a garnet robe. It was most likely an overdress or a cloak that one of the soldiers would wear to protect themselves from the elements, but this was an old one, one that wasn't used anymore. And so they weren't clothing him as royalty. It wasn't this thing that we're lifting you high, we're elevating you. No, we're, we're making fun of you, king of the Jews. We want to dress you like a king in our midst while we beat you and spit on you and mock you. So we're going to give you a robe worthy of royalty after your back has been torn down to the very bone and we're going to put it on you. And then we're going to make you a crown. We don't, we don't have one handy, but we have thorns. So we're going to weave those together, kind of like a laurel that you would give to someone who is victorious. And we're going to press that on your head. And we're going to give you a reed or a stick to hold as like a scepter. And we're going to bow down and pay homage to you as we spit on you and make fun of you and beat you, king of the Jews. This is not, <laughs> like, it's not pretty. It's not fun. It's not, it's not palpable. Like it's, I mean, it's not palatable. It's just viscerally painful and tragic, humiliating, and all of those things. But we see a Savior that was in control the entire time. Like at any moment, we've already heard, he could have finished it. He could have been done. Like he reminded them at one point, don't, don't live by the sword because you'll die by it. Just know if, if I wanted to, I could end all of this. But he chose not to remember the, the Savior and the chaos, the control and the chaos that we've seen for weeks on end now. He could have ended it all, but he stayed. Stayed for the beating, stayed for the humiliation, stayed for the mocking, stayed for the spitting, stayed for the scourgings, and continued just to move towards the cross under his own volition. We talk about so often that this Jesus is so completely, vastly, otherworldly different than any anyone else that's come before him or that came after him. This is not normal. This is not human. This is not in my ability to do. Because at some point, I would have had to raise my hand and just say, stop. This is not my fault. And I promise you, at some point, you would have done the same thing. Stop. This is not my fault. I don't deserve this. But Jesus had made himself deserving by taking on my sin, your sin. We'll get to that. And when they had mocked him, verse 20, mocked him enough, when they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his clothes back on him, they led him out to crucify him. It's interesting, they put his clothes back on him. Most of the time, crucifixion, they were naked. But apparently, they at least put the minimum back on him to respect the Jewish sensibilities, most likely. We don't know. And again, the writers don't, they don't try to chime in either, just the facts. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. If we read the rest of the Gospels, it, it, it appears that Jesus carried the cross member of the cross as far as he could after the beatings, after the scourgings, after all of those things, until he couldn't anymore. And so there was a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. And apparently he had two sons, and I, I think they're named because they were probably known in the Roman church afterwards. Possibly their lives were changed by this very event. And I'm not going to write a message on that or actually do anything, but I'm just saying they were named there specifically. Gospel writers generally didn't name someone unless the people that were reading it would know who they were. And he said this guy was the father of Alexander and Rufus, so likely they knew him. But either way, they compelled him, <laughs> which that's a nice way of saying they made him pick up the cross member of the cross and, and carry it because Jesus apparently could no longer do that because he had already taken so much. He brought him to a place called Golgotha or Calvary, which means place of the skull, shaped like a skull. It's a hill on the outside of the city, the best that we know. And it would have been very visible. Um, and it would have been high and lifted up, interesting choice of words, hearkening all the way back to Isaiah, thinking of a place of royalty and elevating someone. But this was 
different yet the same. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Again, a lot of times people will read this, the wine mixed with myrrh, and they think this was to dull his senses or to dull his pain. But actually, myrrh would be mixed in with wine to make good wine even better. Again, this was a mockery of his position, saying, hey, you're the king of the Jews. Let me give you the best wine that we have. And he didn't take it. He had already said that he would not take fruit of the vine until the new kingdom. But he didn't take it either way. And it says, and this is verse 24, very interesting one verse, but so much occurred. And a lot of that we have to lean into history to know what this meant, but it just says, and they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And they, they crucified him. Like, sounds pretty simple, but in that we know what that looked like now. We know that for Jesus, not every crucifixion occurred with nails, but we know that his did basing it on the way that he appeared to Thomas, and he showed proof of the nails to Thomas to say, look, touch here, touch here. You'll know this is me. And so they would lay him down on the ground and nail his arms to the cross and then attach the cross member to the vertical and then probably put a spike through his legs above the ankle where he'd have just enough bend in the knee so that he could lift himself up to breathe your body would be hung below your hands. We see very pretty pictures of this where it's nice and perpendicular, a lot of 90-degree angles, but it wasn't the case. You would literally hang on the cross. Sometimes they would put a nice step under your feet to give you something to press off of, but for him, we don't know that that happened. We know that there were nails through his ankles, and that's probably what he had to push up with each time that he chose to breathe. Horrible. I mean, just, I mean... Like I said last week, to understand the reward, sometimes we have to understand the cost. And this price, this cost, was incredibly high. Like, it was, it was beyond our understanding, beyond my ability to feel pain. Like, it's just more. And they crucified him. Dropped the vertical into the ground, and he hung above so people could watch. So there's the, the physical pain, which is immense. There's the absolute humiliation to know that this is the king of kings, not just the king of the Jews, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, being paraded in front of all passers-by to be humiliated, spit on, mocked, derided, beaten, now crucified. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, gambled for his clothing, which was kind of a standard practice, you know. Just, I mean, the level of hate is beyond calculation. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, roughly 9 a.m. And I will say, when reading the gospel accounts about time, generally it's not that they looked at their sundial watch and said, oh, it's exactly 9 o'clock. A lot of times these were estimations, but he was hung on the cross around 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription or the charge against him read, King of the Jews. Most of the time we see this in portrayals. Normally it's a very white Jesus, number one, with perfect teeth, and some blonde hair and blue eyes, which is completely, totally inaccurate. Um, I mean, Jesus was quite brown, let's be honest, and dark hair, a very wool-like beard, and, and no blue eyes anywhere. But most of the time, we see this little placard above him reading King of the Jews, and we think that's that mockery or making fun. No, it was the charge in which he was being crucified for. They would hang a criminal, and then they would put above them what they had done. They were crucifying Jesus because someone had said that he was the king of the Jews. He wants the power that only Caesar should have. And so Rome's like, okay, can't do that. Not, not here. Not now. So we're going to hang you from a cross until you're dead. And here's the charge. Made up, fictitious, a lie, but in reality, partially true. But this was the charge that was brought against him on the placard of king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. It's very likely that the people coming in and out of Jerusalem today were the same people that were coming in and out of Jerusalem just six days previous, five to six days previous, when Jesus triumphantly entered on the back of a borrowed donkey that was perfect. And they were laying down palm fronds then... But now they're mocking him for false but entirely true accusations. We talked about the mob last week. Never listen to the mob because the mob is fickle and will lead you from the truth. So this particular group, they, they mock him. 
And they say, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Now this would be literary irony at its finest. Because what he's doing in this moment is he's offering salvation even for those people who are mocking him. And if he came down, he would not be able to do exactly what he said that he was going to do. What they thought they were making up as a lie and as mockery right now, the truth, the irony is, he was doing that exact thing as he was hanging on the cross. He was tearing down the temple made by hands and rebuilding it not made with hands while there, while drawing his last few breaths, while bleeding his last few drops, while dying one breath at a time. He was tearing down the institution of the law that we could not possibly live out and fulfill and instead was building in its place a new temple, a new kingdom, a new deal that we so desperately needed. Not made with hands, but made with spirit. Save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him one to another, verse 31, saying he saves others, but he cannot save himself. At this point, they're probably beating their chest a little bit. And they're excited because they were right, or they thought they were. This king of the Jews who stretches out hands on the Sabbath. This king of the Jews who doesn't make his disciples wash their hands before they eat. This king of the Jews who told us that our reign and our authority would come to an end because we had misused it, can't even save himself now. High fives. Again, the irony there. Uh, he was quite possibly saving them if they in turn believe. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And he had already told them, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign other than, other than you tear this temple down, I'll, re I'll raise it in three days. They still weren't picking up what he had been laying down for three years. They still weren't seeing it. They still weren't seeing that this temple that they had used, this temple made by hands that they had placed their faith in, their trust in, they still weren't seeing that it was changing, that it was moving, that it was becoming something new, something they needed, something they couldn't make, something they couldn't understand. And it even says those who crucified were crucified with him reviled him also. Now we do see, if we read the rest of the Gospels, that one of those came to his defense at one point and was like, leave me alone. And, and it, there's even this beautiful picture that possibly he even began to see that this was not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all creation, this Jesus hanging there. And Jesus even told him, today you'll be with me in paradise, which is pretty crazy to think that a thief on the cross could earn salvation. But anyway, verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, darkness came with it over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three, the gospel writers say that darkness came. And again, they don't add anything there that doesn't need to be there. They didn't say there was an eclipse. They didn't say the clouds got dark. They didn't say that. They were just like, no, the light was gone. Darkness is the absence of light. They didn't seek to describe it. They didn't seek to explain it. They were just like, it got dark from like noon to three. Totally dark. This wasn't a physical eclipse. This wasn't clouds. We can't go to explain this. This was, this was spiritual in nature. Like we go and read the rest of the Gospels, we see that the ground would shake in just a minute, minute and dead people would get out of the grave and walk. All of creation was being shaken to its core because the king of all creation who created with the speaking of a word was hanging on a cross and dying and the world didn't know what to do. Even the created without the inner soul of us, the rocks and the rivers and the creeks and the ground itself, they didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't explain it, and so they began to shake. Like we try to explain this event away, and we can't. We can't add anything between the lines to make it make sense because it doesn't. There's no way, there's no algorithm, there's no process, there's no formula to make any of this make sense because it doesn't. The king of all, God with skin on, hung on a cross for me and you and died a horrible death in his perfection for my imperfection. The sky grew dark. And then at the end of that, at the ninth hour, uh, then at three o'clock or roundabouts, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we go back and we read Psalm 22, there's several parallels and things that occur. Prophecy from the hand of David that are being fulfilled here. Um, and this is one of those. 
And this is a painful statement. Because like we talked about in the garden, Jesus knew what was coming. There were times in which in his divinity, he willingly loosed himself for parts of his divinity and chose not to know what was going on, which will wreck our minds. How can I choose not to know something? Well, Jesus could because he was Jesus. But in the case of what was coming, he did know. He did see. He came for this reason. And he even said, Father, if there's another way, let it be. But if not, what you want is what I'll do. Your cup of wrath that I'm about to drink, I don't want it, but I will. And part of that wrath, part of the occurrence, because God in himself is perfect and flawless and cannot be party to sin. When Jesus took on mine and took on yours, I do thoroughly believe that God did have to, in a sense, turn his back on Jesus. And for the only time throughout all of eternity, even though there was oneness in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, co-equal in power, distinct in responsibility and role, for one point in history, just for a while, there had to be a cleaving, a separation. And this is the tragedy. That cleaving, that separation took place because of my sin on Jesus, your sin on Jesus. This wasn't metaphorical. If it was metaphorical, it wouldn't have worked. It was literal. He literally bore my sin, bore your sin on the cross and bled to satisfy the payment. And for a while, there was a time in which the oneness that had been known, the uniqueness of the Trinity, had been broken. How is that even possible? We don't have a good metaphor for the Trinity. Like we talk about it in our membership class, like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all God. Not three persons, it's one. But there's three. Blow your mind. But for this moment, had been ripped away. And the people that were listening to it, because in Hebrew and because in Aramaic, the first two words of my God, my God, they sounded a lot like Elijah. And so people were like, oh, he's calling out to Elijah. He probably wasn't perfectly clear in his speech, to be honest, at this point. I mean, he was dehydrated. He was bleeding to death. He was struggling to breathe. And so people heard what they thought he said was Elijah. And people misunderstood that John the Baptist was actually the fulfillment of the prophecy about Elijah because they weren't paying attention. They weren't quite able to see that yet. They would probably most likely see it later as we get to as well. Uh, but at this point, they were like, he's calling out to Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine or vinegar. It wasn't actually wine. It was, it was a vinegar to satiate thirst. And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, and someone stopped him, saying, wait, 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 wait. Let's see what happens. I've heard some people say, Elijah, let's, let's just wait. Let's see. It was a spectacle. And it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't record the words. He just records what occurs uh, but in Luke, in Luke, we see him say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In John, we see him say, it is finished. And then he exhaled his last time. Right there. If you feel like it's tragic, you're on the money. It's horrible. Painful. Terrible. All of those things. But, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and here are our two verses. Number one, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Hold on to those, we'll come right back. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. However, we want to talk about the sexes. If we look to Jesus, we see that he had women that were disciples. And of all of his male disciples, to be honest, most of them turned tailed and ran, but the women stuck. Now, man, I don't know if we want to take that all the way back to the tree in the garden to talk about our passive nature, our sin nature that stands and creeps and waits to devour us or not, but I think I could make a case across the table. But these women who were named, they stuck. They stayed. And there were many others that weren't named, so it wasn't just a couple. 
I just hear that as a call for men to step up. And women, good for you, when times that you do, when we don't. Anyway, we'll go back to our two verses. And the curtain was torn in two. So for us, we may read this as redecoration of the temple. <laughs> because we don't understand it's not at the core of our life. But you have to understand for the people of Israel, the temple had become something it was not meant to be. It had become not just a place or a central place for their religious life, but in actuality there was this idea and this reality that the very presence of God would reside in the innermost portion of the temple. And once a year, one person would go inside that temple and he would make metaphorical or allegorical amends for sin. And it was so scary, so dreadful, he had to make sure that he was fully repented. Uh, all sin had been confessed and taken care of because if it wasn't, he would walk in and he would die. And they would actually tie a rope around his leg. If for some reason he stopped moving, they could pull him out. And he would go behind one or two very you know, robust curtains. Now, there have been people who have made assumptions that these curtains were four feet thick. We don't know. When the, when the prescription for the curtains were made, it was talking about length and height and materials and those kind of things. We don't know how thick they were. That would be conjecture. But there have been people that saying two horses running in opposite directions could not tear them apart. We don't know. Either way, they were tough. And so we can look at the tur curtain being torn in two, and we could be like, man, God is really strong. That's like, you know, a feat of strength. You know, I don't know if you know this about me, and, and I don't, you know, it's really weird. I was a competitive strength athlete for a long time, and somehow, somewhere along the way, I can't believe that I did it, but I got roped into doing these, these traveling things where you would do feats of strength. And then there would be a very motivational speaker at the end, okay? I don't know. Why I said yes, I, I don't know. But I like doing stuff, and so it was fun. I'd roll frying pans. I would bend rebar into shapes of fishes. I, I would break bricks, do that kind of stuff. I, I don't get it, okay? But it was fun, you know? You get to break stuff. And... And there was a guy that we had, and he would tear a phone book. And apparently, that was the hardest thing you could do. I never could do it, you know. I don't have giant man hands, you know. I couldn't do it, but he could, and it was pretty impressive to watch. So we could look at this temple tearing and be like, man, Jesus, God, you should take that show on the road. That's pretty impressive. But the fact that the curtain was torn in two is not the biggest thing. The result, what it's showing is what we need to see, what we need to understand. And why at the moment, right before or right after or simultaneously, why, when Jesus breathed his last, did this occur? Why? Here's the thing that separates what we're offered by Jesus from any other religion. And we don't want to create religious people. Churchgoers, that's, no, we are the church. We, we don't want religion. We need relationship. But the thing that separates Christ and what he offers from anything else is that as a result of Jesus, we can go in freely to God. We have access to God, the God, not a God, lowercase g, the God, who made everything with a word, who made you and me down to our very mitochondria, we can go in to God. Up until this time with the system that religion had, had created with the law, like people didn't have that. They couldn't know God. They could know stories of God. They could know the law of God. They could know the righteousness that they needed to live out day by day by day by day and live in fear that if they did not, they wouldn't earn God's approval. They couldn't live out the law, and they would be lost, and they would have to periodically give their sins to someone else for them to take in and make amends. But Jesus, on the other hand, what Jesus brought, what Jesus was ushering in was a new kingdom, a new idea, a new Passover, not just to serve us circumstantially, not just to serve us for a while, but to serve us for the eternity that we were meant to live in. And he said, in this eternity that you get to live in, you have freedom, you have access, you have confidence to approach God without fear and with boldness. Hebrews 4.16, which we're going to throw up, it says, uh, right after the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Hebrew 4, Hebrews 4.16 I think, yeah, 
Since then, we have a great high priest, or 14 through 16, pardon me, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. That is our confession that Jesus is Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that is the throne of God, that we may receive mercy, find grace to help in the time of need. The people of Israel, the thing that they would have found so fascinating, so daunting if they would have just listened, if they would have just watched, if they would have just believed, is now they had freedom to approach God without any mediary here on earth. They didn't need someone to go to God for them. They didn't need someone to take their sins to God for them. Now, as a result of Christ, the price that he paid, the curtain that he tore, the death that he died, we can know God, we can be known by God, and we can do it with great boldness and great confidence. The temple no longer kept us out. The curtain no longer was a boundary. The boundary was gone. Jesus became our way. Just Jesus. Not our good works, not our righteousness, not our ability or our inability to keep the law, because Jesus, in this moment, even though they were mocking him about the temple, even though they were mocking him about saving himself, but saving other people, what he was doing in this moment is he was becoming the door, the gate that we needed, the gate that he had already said that he was. So we could actually approach God with, uh, with confidence. We can know God. We can approach Him. Uh, Jesus satisfied the debt because He's our doorway. Continuing on in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So now we no longer need that high priest to go in on our behalf and say, these people have committed these sins, these people have done these things. Would you please forgive him now? We can go to God. We can tell God our hopes, our fears, our failures, our needs. We can tell God our doubts. We can say, God, I would like to reason with you. Not so that I can change your mind, but so that you may change mine. Because of Jesus. Like no other religion, no other system, no other doctrine in the world is going to say that you can know the one true God without reservations. None. Instead, they're going to put a list before you and say, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to say this, you need to wear this, you need to think this, and then you need to X, Y, Z at infinity, at infinity, <laughs> infinity, whatever. Jesus just said, you can't do any of that, so I'm going to do it for you. I'll do it for you. I'll live the things you couldn't live. I'll avoid the things you couldn't avoid. Just like it said just a minute ago, like he was perfect. and He became the ransom for all. He said, I'll, I'll do it for you because you can't. I'll make a way. Again, because you can't. I'll tear the curtain because right now you can't even walk through it. The curtain being torn in two. Continuing on in Ephesians 2.18, talking about being strangers and aliens in reference to each other, but talking about God making one man through the Spirit, which is Jew and Gentile. But it says, for through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one Spirit to the Father because of the work that Jesus has done. We have access. We don't need anyone else to go before us. No one. Just us. Through Jesus. And then Romans 8.1 just assures us one more, for there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The people of Israel would have found this completely preposterous because they were unwilling to relent and let go of their law. And even though we don't hold the same law, the same standard, part of me struggles with the exact same thing. Like part of me still feels like I have to live a certain way so that God will treat me a certain way. But that's not reality. That's not reality. Jesus paid the price, so I don't have to worry about that. Now, does that mean that my life should look like the rest of the world? No, not saying that at all. I'm not offering us liberty and license to live like people that don't know Christ, but I'm telling us we don't have to live a certain way in order to be known by God through Christ. We just have to have Christ to be known by God. And then as a result, we live in a certain way, a distinct way, a different way, a way according to Scripture, a way that we seek to please God, even though He doesn't need us to please Him in order to earn our salvation. We do it in response to what Jesus has done. It's the difference between legalism and relationship. 
He has granted us the right for the curtain to be gone. Not to just walk through it, but for the curtain to be gone. The first statement we see in here is that the curtain was torn in two. We've talked about all the things that we need to be grateful for towards Christ. Praying, I mean, paying our price, taking our death, taking our sin to the cross. But man, the one thing that we have to mention, that we have to see, and that's why it's here, and that's why the gospel writers choose to include just the facts, and especially this one, is because of Jesus we can actually know God. Like truly know God without fear of being asked to explain our actions, explain our motives, make payment for our sin. Jesus already did all of that. We just get to go in and be with God. And that is crazy. That's crazy. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But Jesus said, no, you're exactly right. You don't. But I do. And I'm going to give you my pass and let you go in and out freely in my name, under my banner. When he looks at your name tag to see whether or not you're worthy, it's just going to say Jesus. It's not going to say David, Neil, Jonathan. Nope, Jesus. That's who gets to go in. Jesus. We just get to go with him. Second statement. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And you say, why? What's the point of that? A man who had just beaten Jesus, a man who had just mocked Jesus, a man who had just crucified Jesus was also extended grace to see Jesus for exactly who he was. That shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. And by proxy, I had just as much to do with Jesus' death as he did. You had just as much to do with his death as he did. Because even though you didn't drive the nails, and I didn't drive the nails, even though I didn't beat him, it was my sin that put him there. Now, it was God's love and God's desire that put him there first, but the continuation extended to my sin. Put him there. If the centurion can see God for who he is, see Jesus for the reality of who he is, no one is off limits. No one. No one is beyond the reach of seeing the truth of who Jesus is. And the reason that's important is because you and I, you're sitting here and you're like, no, 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 I get it, I get it. Yep, Jesus can save even me. Here's the thing we need to understand, and this is why this is so paramount. Jesus can also save your neighbor, regardless of what they've done. Jesus can also save your coworker, regardless of what they've done. Jesus can also save a Murdoch guy who killed his wife and kid, who's going to prison for life times two. He can save him. No one's off limits. And it's vital that we understand that because unless we understand that, we won't share the gospel with great confidence and boldness either. We'll think it's for me, for us, for we, because somehow we're good enough. But my neighbor's probably not. A centurion that just crucified Jesus, looked at him, heard his words, saw the way that he died, and said, this is truly the Son of God. He can see it, anybody can. Now, they have to hear of the truth first. They have to see it lived out in me, in you first, and God will use that to save them. We don't save them. I don't orchestrate their salvation, but hearing comes, I mean, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. Again, we've talked about that. We can have pretty feet, how beautiful the feet of those who take the good news, according to Romans chapter 10, but we will never be those who take the good news unless we believe that Jesus can save anybody. Anybody. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 is a great reminder for us as to where we were. Paul is telling the people of Ephesus, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, by the way, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all, we've talked about that, the Greek word for all actually means all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were sinner. You were broken. You were a stranger and alien to the goodness of God, and God saved you. God can save the centurion 
God can save anybody that's in our midst as long as they just believe. But in order for them to believe, they need to be here, they need to be called, but it starts with us being obedient. But before we can be obedient, we have to believe that God can do it. Because we'll never be obedient unless we do believe that. Never. We're not going to share the gospel unless we think that it's actually efficient for our neighbor, efficient for our coworker, efficient for our child. We won't share. We won't talk about it. Even though it's meant a lot to me, we won't share it unless we believe that it can mean eternity for them. The centurion killed Jesus, put him on the cross physically, and looked at him and realized exactly who he was as he died. I think the longer that we hear this story, there's a tendency for us to believe that it's, it's just a story or it's a tenet of our faith or something that we need to be aware of. We have to understand it's everything. It's everything. Because if we don't want this, this crucifixion, this resurrection that's to come, the very words of Jesus, then we need to go back to the law. We need to go back to not being able to go through the curtain. We need to go back to have to live out everything perfectly. We need to go back to that. So we've got a choice. We can either believe in Jesus or we can believe in something we can't do. Something that he came to do because we couldn't. And that's our choice. And, and it seems simple. But if we're just holding on to it as a tenant or a part, maybe it's not big enough to us. Maybe it's not vital enough for us. Just like his identity is everything, his identity led him to do what he did. And if we want to know God, we have to trust in what he did versus what I'll do and believe that it's just Jesus that makes a way. Just Jesus. And if we believe in it enough for ourselves, we have to believe in it enough to tell people. We have to believe in it enough to actually attach words to the gospel, this good news that is alive and well in us by grace through faith. We have to speak of it. And that's not just for ministers. That's not just for deacons. That's not just for elders. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, we're all ministers, servers, takers of the good news, this new covenant that is through the life, the death, the blood, and the resurrection of Jesus. All of us. If we believe it, we share it. The world depends on it. God, we love you. Thank you for the tragedy of the cross that led to our victory. Even though it's something we, earn, we can't earn, we can't understand, we can't engineer, um, God, we thank you that you did. We thank you that you saw the need for us to know you and enough to make a way. We thank you that there's no longer a curtain. We thank you that there's just a doorway, and his name is Jesus, and he invites us to step through if we just believe that he was enough. God, I pray you would convict us daily to remember. Not because our salvation hinges on it if we've already believed. We don't need you to die again for us, but God, to remind us of what you've done and how vital it is that we trust in you for our sake, for our salvation, but also for those who do not yet know you. Remind us, God, that uh, you have torn away every hindrance for us to know you, be known by you, to make you known, but also remind us, God, that your story, your victory is worth talking about and that no one's beyond your reach. It's not up for us to decide. It's not up for us to interpret. It's just up to us to share and tell until we can't. God, continue to speak. Continue to drive us into a deeper understanding of who you are, a deeper relationship in which we depend on you more. And, Father, a place of just reckless abandon of sharing of your goodness any way that we can. Thank you for loving us. Amen.